I don't think there's one correct way that you can train all horses. So really to, to get a horse to achieve its full potential, you have to learn that horse and you have to learn how it responds to different techniques and how it responds to being pushed and how it responds to getting rewarded. And, um, so, uh, some horses need lots of work and lots of turnout. Some horses need less and need more riding. Uh, I just, I think they're all individuals. And like I said earlier, trying to achieve their maximum potential, you have to understand them and you have to learn how they respond best. I, it, it carries over to my students as well. Like when I'm teaching students, each student is an individual and learns a different way slightly. Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandra Olinick, and this week's episode is with Northern California hunter-jumper trainer, Ned Glynn. The owner of Sonoma Valley Stables in Petaluma, California, Ned is a respected trainer in hunters, jumpers, and equitation. The foundation for his success is threefold, solid horsemanship and strong business and people skills. As Ned explains during our conversation, much of that foundation stems from his parents. While initially not horse people, they supported his desire to make riding and training his profession. But they also encouraged him to expand his knowledge beyond those skills and explore different perspectives within the industry. So while he continued learning from a variety of top trainers, Ned apprenticed with both 1996 Atlanta Olympic course designer Linda Allen and renowned veterinarian J.D. Wheat. He also earned his bachelor's degree in economics at the University of California, Davis. All of these factors helped Ned launch Sonoma Valley Stables in 1996 and establish a training philosophy that centers on creating a consistent approach to training for his students and horses whether they are preparing for a local show or international championship. This means solid flat work fundamentals and not overfacing students or horses. The result is positive riders who have fun and happy horses who are fit and sound. To fill you in on more of Ned's background, he started riding at about age 10 when his parents sent him to ranch camp. He followed his sister into eventing at a barn in Petaluma. His parents bought him his first horse for about $2,500 from an ad in the local paper. With that horse came a month of board and training with Northern California hunter-jumper trainer John Charlebois. This led to a working student position with Betty Killam, and it was with Betty that Ned was able to ride green and experienced hunters and jumpers and even polo ponies. In that work, Ned learned he had an affinity for working with and developing young horses. Ned then rode as a junior with Olympian Duncan McFarlane and his wife, Gree. He also worked with the equestrian team at UC Davis and traveled to the East Coast to train and compete, where he met mentor Candace King before starting his business. Fast forward, and Ned's daughter, Avery, is following in his footsteps having won the Taylor Harris Insurance Services Children's Medal Finals at the Capital Challenge Horse Show in 2018 on a horse whom Ned initially trained as a jumper. Keeping riding and training in the family, Ned and his wife, Rebecca Bruce Glynn, whom he married in late 2019, are now busy juggling their stables as separate entities, 
Rebecca owns and operates Sunnybrook Elite Riding Club just outside of Santa Barbara, California. Ned also discusses the balancing act in this episode. Before getting into the conversation, I'd like to thank the sponsor of this week's podcast, Bimeda, and share their message. Bimeda might be the biggest animal health company you've never heard of till now. Bimeda's products have been trusted by veterinarians and owners since the 1960s when our Irish roots began. Bimeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers like Equimax, Bimectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes also rely on polyglycan, a patented formula that replaces lost or damaged synovial fluid, and Confidence EQ pheromone gel, which reduces and prevents equine stress. Consult your veterinarian and visit bimedaus.com to see where to buy. Now, let's jump right into the conversation with Ned, where he first shares what it is about horses and the sport that have kept him involved for so long. It's just such a special sport in that you're, you're pairing, you know, these magnificent animals along with an athlete together. Uh, so it just separates it from all other sports. I did play basketball through high school and I really enjoyed that. It was a team sport, but more of an individual thing. Uh, just the excitement of trying to get your horse and yourself to peak at the right moment and perform well together while you communicate uh, at high levels is just, there's nothing else like it in the world, really. And then you mentioned John, and I've read that uh, with John and Betty Killam. Yes, so John and John and Lumpy Charlevoix were together at the time, Lumpy Killam, and Lumpy's mom, Betty, was at the farm that I was at, and she didn't have a rider at the time. So fortunately, when I was 13 or 14, I got to start being a working student for her, uh, yeah. and basically riding all of her horses. She, she did hunter jumper horses and also polo uh, ponies. So I got to ride the polo ponies and I got to ride most of the hunter jumper horses in the barn, young ones, going ones. There were some great, you know, competing horses, but there was also some nice up and coming horses. So I really found myself drawn to both, but I had a real connection with the young horses uh, and helping her bring them along and get them to their first shows and do that type of thing. Um, you've said that, you know, while you were there, um, that's sort of where you developed your core understanding that each horse requires an individual approach. Can you share, you know, what, what exactly that means to you and, and how you develop that? Yeah, well, I, I really do think each horse is an individual. I, I, I don't think there's one correct way that you can train all horses. So really to, to get a horse to achieve its full potential, you have to learn that horse and you have to learn how it responds to different techniques and how it responds to being pushed and how it responds to getting rewarded. And um, so uh, some horses need lots of work and lots of turnout. Some horses need less and need more riding. Uh, I just, I think they're all individuals. And like I said earlier, trying to achieve their maximum potential, you have to understand them and you have to learn how they respond best. I, it, it carries over to my students as well. Like when I'm teaching students, each student is an individual and learns a different way slightly. So you have to adapt basically, I think, to both your horses and your students. If you're gonna get them to achieve at their highest potential, you have to be presenting what you want from them in a way they understand and a way that they can thrive. And then, you know, can you speak a little bit more about uh, who some of your other mentors have been in, in the horse business? Yeah, I was fortunate enough um, after college to go across country um, and meet up with Candace King. Uh, and 
I got to show with her for quite a few weeks at some of the bigger shows across the country. And she was a great mentor. She was, she was, she still is riding at the top of her game, but she had fantastic Grand Prix horse at the time was, was winning at Spruce Meadows. Um, really broadened my, my vision of what was out there. I had really never experienced much more than California. So getting to go to New York and Virginia, Pennsylvania, and show at some of the bigger shows with her uh, was incredible. And it just, it, it just upped, I think, my appreciation for attention to detail and first one there and the last one to leave, basically, making sure that if there was something that could be done for the horses to prepare them, uh, you were going to get it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, on As far as not a rider, um, I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of an apprenticeship with Dr. J.D. Wheat, who was a really a famous veterinarian teaching vet from UC Davis. And I got really fortunate that he was going into semi-retirement. And I honestly, I can't remember exactly how we met, but he came to the barn I was at, which was in, in Shellville, uh, which is right outside of Sonoma in California. And we just hit it off immediately as far as talking to horse, talking about horses, talking about soundness and talking about longevity and talking about performance based on how the horse is feeling. Uh, and he would just come once a week or twice a month and just we'd pull horses out of the stalls. He just asked me what was going on with this horse. And we'd talk about it and uh, just come up with plans to make sure that they were feeling their best. And it, it was just an incredible experience because I think he was a vet that truly loved treating animals, but also liked performance as well. So putting those two things together is so foundationally important for what we do. Making sure that horse is, is feeling good and, and has a long career is, is really as important as, as anything we can do for them. And, you know, while I won't say that's unusual, you know, going to, to work with a vet, you know, what, what, what prompted you to do that? You don't hear about it too often. Yeah. You know, I've been very fortunate this, this, this whole life choice for me started back in high school before I graduated high school and went off to college. Uh, my parents were supportive of this choice, uh, but they also knew that it was going to be uh, important that I had perspectives from the different aspects of the horse world, not just riding. Um, so I did apprenticeships with instructors. I did apprenticeships with course designers. I did apprenticeships with vets. Uh, I went to Europe and saw horses in Europe. I went to the East Coast and saw horses in the East Coast. They, my parents were great role models and were supportive, but also wanted to make sure that I had a chance of success. And I think that we discussed the, how important it was to understand the different facets of what went into producing competition horses from different perspectives. Um, so uh, it, that's where it started. And then it just, I, I think I've always had a grasp that making sure I have an idea that my horse are getting the best care uh, is so important you know, for their, their lives, their well-being, their performance, that I, I was drawn to it. I wanted to know and see through these different perspectives what I could do better. And, and I, so I was just like a sponge. Whenever I had an opportunity to, to be with Dr. Wheat, uh, I, I loved it. I still remember those days. And then um, I got really fortunate and got an apprenticeship working with Linda Allen right, right around the, the, I believe it was the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. So I got to be a, uh, uh, an apprentice course designer there. I got to go do World Cup finals with her in Sweden. Um, and she's an, also an amazing horsewoman. It was a big influence on me. She uh, wasn't riding at the time because of injuries, but she instilled in me that the course designer really is one of the most important people on the showgrounds. And it's really the course designer's role is to give every horse on that showgrounds 
an opportunity to thrive and get better throughout a week. Um, she really, she really considers, considers herself a course trainer as much as a course designer. So, you know, where she starts, you know, divisions at what levels and, you know, the, the technicality and the difficulty of courses, you'll just see, you know, obviously she's going to make it very inviting the first day and then it's going to build. And I, I remember her telling me she was always hopeful that riders would be able to move up a division when they were done with riding, you know, one of her, her weeks that she was designing. So she was very, uh, much a big a big part of what helped me uh learn schooling exercises for horses and also the respect that i have now for course designers and and what what they're really out there trying to do and then uh you attended college at uc davis and yes. i understand you did uh, you helped with uh coaching the um the team there yes uh, yeah I, so i Davis didn't have a business major at the time, so I studied economics. Again, going back to the fact that my parents put some good guidance into me that 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 being a horse professional wasn't just getting to ride or teach, that there was a lot of business behind it. So I studied economics while I was there, um, and I did. But because I knew that I wanted to turn professional as soon as I was done with college, I did start coaching the equestrian team there, uh, uh, which was great because it 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 gave me experience teaching all levels of riders. We had advanced riders that were good enough to ride on that, you know, an A circuit, but we also had beginners. Uh, I recall teaching beginners on riding a donkey at one point while I was, while I was teaching at Davis. Um, so it just gave me all sorts of experience teaching different levels, different types of horses, different people. Um, and just, it just, I, I, I did realize then that I had an affinity for coaching as well. So I knew at that point that, uh, I was passionate about riding and I, I, I loved it, but I also, at a young age, realized that I thought I could communicate well with riders and horses and, and impart really good knowledge to them. And I, I felt like my students thrived and, and respected me. And I understand that, you know, while you were there, you also worked with off-the-track thoroughbreds, training and reselling them. Um, and I know, you know, a lot of the Practical Horseman readers have thoroughbreds. So I was just curious, you know, what was it like working with the thoroughbreds and, and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so that was mainly, I was a little bit after Davis more so. Like when I first opened my business, uh, I had a couple of show clients, but I also had a couple of babies that I was breaking or rebreaking. Um, I And I had quite a few horses that had, had run races before thoroughbreds. There was more in the industry at that time. I actually had a, uh, a fan, one of my biggest wins was a was a Grand Prix win up in Bend, Oregon, and it was on an off-the-track thoroughbred uh, uh, by Native Dancer. So uh, his name was Blackhawk, just a really spectacular horse. Um, so it, I think that they, in general, are a little bit more flighty than the warm bloods we, we work with now. Um, I think I, I just had to take my time with them a little bit. Like if they were, if a lot of them had been started quickly and had learned bad habits. Um, so just um, a lot of groundwork and just taking my time. I started in the round pen a lot of days, just getting them to trust a little bit and then uh, making sure that the steps were introduced to them slowly. The good thoroughbreds are fantastic and they're fantastic athletes and they take to it quickly. Some of them though, it's not like the wormwoods that have been bred to jump, jump generation after generation after generation. So I think you have to maybe take a little bit more time at the, with the initial steps. You have to really make sure that the foundation is there and that they're confident in what they're doing. Um, so that was my experience with them was I, I did really enjoy working with the thoroughbreds. Uh, and I just had to be sure that I gained their trust. I took my time 
and that their foundation was really solid before you, you moved them up. Then the ones that were really good at it and acclimated to it well were fantastic and they were careful and fast and, and just really amazing animals. You know, in terms of the hunters, jumpers and equitation, uh, do you have a favorite? I don't, you know, people ask all the time, like, like if they have, they'll ask, I'll ask my students, do you, do you have a favorite? I think most people get a favorite if they have a horse that was really good at one of them. So they have a relationship or a memory of a of a horse that was fantastic in one of the divisions. I would say my heart is a little more in the jumper ring. That 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 uh, is you know my experiences at Spruce Meadows uh, with myself and with bringing students there are some of my favorite memories of all time. But I really like all of the divisions and I see the benefits of all of them. Um, over the past ten years as a trainer and groundsman, I've had much more success in the hunter ring, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. People ask how I train a hunter differently than a jumper. And there's very many similarities and that we're trying to get the horses really balanced, sound, uh, relaxed, trusting, uh, and then jumping really square athletically, uh, in a balanced manner, landing balanced, all those things translate from jumpers to hunters. Uh, it's, I think it's, it's sometimes one of the advantages I've had is that I had that jumper background and I've been able to bring that over to the hunter ring. I think that, that maybe the fitness level isn't quite as, as, as high. You don't need them to be quite as, as have quite as much wind to do the hunters. Um, but in general, you, you want them very elastic, very balanced. You want them jumping very square. You want them catching both leads. You want to, you want them, uh, there's so many similarities it just the courses are different and like i said maybe the fitness level is different and the pace may be different but in many ways there's lots of similarities and i feel like my foundation and the jumpers really helped me uh translate into a great hunter trainer and talking can you maybe talk a little bit more about your foundation in the jumper ring in terms of you know sort of after college i guess how yeah. how you progressed yes so after college uh started the business right away um and had Quite a few, I think I was more equal, equally based in hunters and jumpers at the time and students. So I, I was fortunate enough to have three or four jumpers. Uh, normally I would own one, but I had a couple of clients that were willing to support me on a couple. Um, I did win two or three pretty big Grand Prix. Uh, like I said, mostly just West Coast, uh, Northern California, Oregon. Um, I kept competing and bringing along. I found I had an affinity for young horses at that point. So I, I then... Uh, started buying horses at age five or six and i i brought three or four along myself through like eight-year-old horses and then sold them uh i had a big business what i realized that if if you really wanted to be a top grand prix rider you really had to focus an enormous amount of time on those horses and it wasn't fitting for me in my schedule basically when i i started i had a family i had a huge business a big property and i found that uh i was better focusing on what I was really good at, which was bringing along a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, and then selling that horse and having someone else bring it along into the next level. Um, my last horse that I did that on before I stopped competing actually has become my daughter's great equitation, Cocoon 4, who she actually won the THS finals on at Capital Challenge. Um, and I brought her through the seven-year-olds and jumped her in the meter 40s. Uh, she was turned out to be not super careful or not super fast but it's just a wonderful horse and she uh, is doing fantastic. And I think is third in our region in the Washington standings right now. Uh, so hopefully he's going to be going back East again this year with my daughter. That's great. That's a nice full, full circle story. 
Yes, for sure, for sure. Um, maybe could you talk a little bit more about some of the, you know, most important or influential horses uh, in your life? You know, who who they are, you know, what they were yeah. like, and, and why they were influential. I think I had a a local bred horse that was my junior hunter named Central Park. Um, uh, that was just an amazing American bred Hanoverian. Uh, she, I believe. Spruce Meadows used to have hunters. They were amazing out on the grass fields with these, these enormous, you know, railroad tie jumps and all this. It was spectacular. And I believe she won the Open Hunter Classic there the last year they had hunters. That must be in the, in the late 80s, I would think. Um, she was an amazing horse. I did medal finals on her. I did jumpers on her. I did hunters on her. She was really a hybrid of what horses were at the time. And she would have fit right in today's market as, a, as an international derby horse. Um, she was green, so I got her when she was six. Uh, and it was just a great journey to, to that. I was riding with Duncan at the time. He did a great job helping me. Uh, but it was a great journey to go from bringing a horse, an American bred green horse that was had when it was started, someone had been a little heavy handed with it. So it was behind the bit all the time. So we took this this kind of green, gawky, gangly American bred Hanoverian and we really brought it to the top level of of hunters and equitation uh, on the West Coast. Um, I actually, in one weekend, finished in the, the top 10 of the Foxfield Derby and the Foxfield uh, Jumper Derby on the same weekend, uh, which is just something that not many, many horses can do. Um, I then went on to sell her to Jamie Krupnik, and she went on to win multiple medal finals and, and, uh, and then turned into one of the best AA hunters uh, in the country. So I think that that instilled in me that, that desire of, of bringing horses along and just just taking your time and achieving their full potential and 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 it just inspired me that if you do it right there's a chance you're gonna you're gonna get this wonderful animal to achieve their really their the top the top level that they can and have a long career and those are those are things that just really excite me about working with the horses uh the other one i brought up earlier was was the thoroughbred off the track uh the uh blackhawk was his name or Jake, we called him just Jake, uh, and he also was a green horse. So he he had only shown one or two jumper shows, and uh, we brought him from the children's jumpers all the way through to, like I said, winning an AGA Grand Prix uh, in Oregon over a three-year period, and then went on to be a fantastic amateur, high amateur owner jumper for for a woman who funny funny story I saw her this past weekend. So that was that's thirty years ago. And the first thing I hadn't seen her Elizabeth in in probably 15 years, and the first thing she wanted to talk about was this horse, how influential it was on her life, which is really cool. So, so you know, they're such special animals, and when when you can get them to achieve their full potential, it's it's really rewarding. And then I I I like working with them, but I'm okay if I sell them and they and they go on to make someone else's life better. You know, moving on, you know, um, could you talk a little bit about some of uh, some of the most important or favorable wins, whether for yourself or a student. That's good. Well, I think I think Avery, my daughter, winning medal finals at Capital Challenge was really special. I, I'm thinking that was about three years ago now on this horse that I had developed as a jumper. So it was there, there's there's so much backstory to it. Just that it was it was Avery was becoming a a young teenager, uh, and as a dad, we were butting heads a little bit. Um, it gave me something in that period that we could work together on. Uh, and it was a great 
hour a day, you know, for, for the years building up to that, that momentous win. So we, we, we talked right from her last seven-year-old class. We talked about what, what she needed to do to become a better equitation course. Uh, and we, we worked hard together on it. And then for it to come full circle and for her to go back east, unfortunately, I wasn't there, but I was watching on my phone at the back gate of another horse show. I was so nervous in that work off. Uh, and when they finally, and then, and then the feed didn't do a good job of telling us who the winner was. So it was, they were, the, the volume had cut out. So we really didn't know for a while. So we were on pins and needles. I, but that moment when I realized that she had achieved this win on this horse, uh, that we had worked so hard together on was, was it, it's, it I'll always remember that moment. So that, that's a huge one. Uh, I also, the first time I went to Spruce Meadows, um, I, had a horse of my own that I was riding, but I also brought a couple of, of students with me and they had recently moved up to the meter forties to the, to the high juniors and going there. And, uh, both of my students on their meter 40 horses jumped clean rounds and got ribbons at their first Spruce Meadows, you know, on the grass, in the rain, it's such a big stage. And I can just remember how excited it was that, that they were prepared and we got there and, and just, just the horses jumped amazing. The kids performed amazing on that stage. So much goes into that. There were two students of mine that had started in the short stirrup ring. So bringing them from the short stirrup ring through the high junior jumpers with double clean rounds at Spruce Meadows was was really rewarding. Um, so one, one of those horses, Alley Oop, uh, my student was Eleanor Hellman, uh, really was just unbelievable for two weeks up there. And the horse, I really uh, made a name for himself. Like Like I had all sorts of people who I had idolized and looked up to coming up to me, trying to, trying to take him out of the barn. Uh, fortunately, we weren't going to let him go. <laughs> you know, also, as you know, in the sport, things, you know, don't always go as planned and you don't often win as much as you'd like. Um, I guess, how do you yeah. deal with not winning, you know, something you really wanted to, or if a student wanted, you know, just really had a goal, how do you sort of handle those? Yeah. That things? Yeah. Well, I guess, Michael Page is one of my mentors also. Uh, I wish I could get him out for more clinics on the West Coast. He's not coming right now. But, uh, you know, when he asks a student, what are your goals? If if they tell him, like, a specific class or a spe specific event, he's really good at, at just instilling that you don't want to put too much pressure on the results of one specific class or one specific event uh, because you can do everything right. Your horse can do everything right. You can prepare correctly. You can train hard. You can have your horse give 100%. You can give 100%. The whole team can give 100%. And on a given day, things might not go your way. And so I really try not to make a specific class or specific event uh, my goal. I really am really trying to have my horses and riders prepared really to their full potential. And then the results really seem to fall in place. They may not be specifically one or another, but the consistency and the wins just, they just happen. So yes, I'm disappointed because I'm very competitive. I don't win every class, but if I've prepared correctly, if my student has prepared correctly and we're there and we're ready, that's the win. You know, the win is the culture. The win is being, being in, being present, being in the moment, being ready. Uh, and then, you know, the stars line up sometimes and you get the wins. And if you are in the moment and you're present and you're ready, those stars line up a lot more often, you know, than if you're not, if you've, if you've fallen down on your job as far as the preparation or, or having your horse in the right, in the right space. 
And then another thing that for sure students, you know, and, and definitely amateurs and juniors deal with our nerves. Um, so I guess, you know, do did you ever get nervous or do you ever get nervous when you're riding and, and how do you handle those nerves yourself and or, you know, with your students? Yeah, I think, I mean, breathing is the first thing. Taking a few deep breaths always is really helpful. Uh, I think, I think in general, I'm a pretty calm person. Uh, I think working on a, a consistent routine for preparation is really good if you can. So things are consistent. Uh, we, we start instilling that in our students from the very start, uh, trying not to get too emotionally up or down in preparation or even with wins so that, that you can start to, to, you know, develop some consistency and repetition in, in how you get yourself ready hopefully how you perform and how you react to your performance. And if the, you know, if you do those things correctly from the beginning and you do them in your, you know, each time you're kind of going with the same approach, uh, I think it can really help alleviate a lot of the anxiety of, of different factors and variables. So I think breathing is really important. I think having a consistent approach to your preparation and your day is really important. Um, and then uh, I think, one thing that I'm quite good at is as a coach is I instill confidence in my riders. And that is, it's really important for me, like through my tone of my coaching to be sure that uh, my student believes that I believe in them. So, you know, as my students get more nervous, I really, as a coach, try and, you know, go back to fundamentals, make it easy and make it positive. Uh, and that's, that's kind of how I handle it. And, and it, I, I think it, it works well with my students. Um, in terms of, you know, the cons consistent routine, do you do you have a routine before a big competition? You know, whether again for yourself or your students or how does does it vary per student and horse? It really varies per student and horse. Yeah, some, some of the horses maybe need a hack or a jump in the morning before a big class. Others don't. I think each student, each horse, uh, we develop, you know, that approach and that routine. Um, and then again, it's just so important that you do that consistently. It can't just be for a big class. You know, you may do a little more for a big class, but but you don't want to be, you know, preparing the horse one way for a couple of rounds and then all of a sudden changing everything for another round. It's 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 really about fundamentals and consistency. And if you do those things, then the big class doesn't feel like it's much different than the small class. And and uh, you know, your rider has hopefully has gone through that routine, has had success. Once you've gone through the routine and you've had success, you can just remind yourself that you can do it, that it's achievable. So I, I think there's not a big difference between a big class and a small class. I think with the big classes, you can spend a little more time. You can make sure, you know, your nutrition is right. You can make sure that the timing of, of your day, hopefully it gives you time to be focused on your course and your walk and, and you know, having enough time before your class. But I don't think there's a big, there's, in my opinion, there shouldn't be a, a giant difference between what you're doing to get ready for a big class and what you're doing for your for your you know your normal division classes and then moving on to you know training I, you can you describe your training philosophy you've obviously touched on it a bit but well I think it, it the, the more experience I get it just it comes it comes really back down to fundamentals fundamentals and con consistency uh, you got to you've got to make sure that the horses are sound and happy enjoying their job and you've got to make sure that your riders are prepared experienced and and uh feel like they have are practicing at the level they're competing so that when they walk in the ring 
uh, you're again, you're not asking them to do something they haven't done before. So it's it's I really think less is more. I think making sure that the horses are out of their stalls enough and are fit and sound. I keep coming back to that. That's that's so important. If the horses are happy with their job and they're feeling good and they're appropriately stimulated and they're 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 in a good space. Uh, then I just got to make sure that my riders get enough repetitions and my riders are enjoying themselves as well. So it's got to be positive. Uh, it, it, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm a, a trainer that uses less words versus more. Um, but I, the big word, I think you hear a lot from me is consistency and repetition, but th- those things, I, I think you can really outthink yourself in the sport and try and try and change your routine or change your program based on, you know, what the new hot product is or the new supplement or the new, uh, training aid is, I think it all comes back down to just really solid flat work fundamentals, happy horses, uh, riders that are riding consistently and getting enough riding in, you know, getting to ride different horses is a, is a huge advantage for riders. Um, so I think less is more really. And I think it, 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 we can, in this sport, a lot of times we overthink ourselves and, and try too many new things. I think you got to just really stay consistent about having a relationship with your horse keep that horse happy, keep that horse sound, keep it stimulated with what it's doing. Your riders have to be having fun. They have to be, they have, they have to be enjoying what they're doing. Uh, and if, if the horse is happy, the rider's happy, they're getting the repetitions, they're competing at an appropriate level, the horse is sound. I, there's a really good chance it's going to be an enjoyable experience for everybody. Talking about uh, flat work fundamentals, how, how would you, um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by what do you think um, the fundamentals yeah. of flat are? Well, the, the, the big ones, forward and back. They got to listen to the first thing we do in every lesson, every day that I teach is get the horse going straight and forward. Uh, and it sounds so easy, but lots of, lots of, I mean, it's tough for beginners, you know, when they're learning their balance and they're getting strength. But once you get past the beginning level, even the intermediate level, a lot of people in our sport trot around on a loose rein and actually, uh, are teaching the horse to get dull to their aids. You know, they're squeezing and they're not getting a reaction and then they're not backing that up. So really getting the horse in front of the leg, getting the horse engaged, getting the horse balanced, uh, and then maybe asking for some connection and some, 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 uh, a horse to come round. But the first thing is, is forward and straight. And it's, it's, it's really amazing to me how many people, if you watch a warm-up ring, how many people just ride around, like I said, on a loose rein, just squeezing every stride with a horse that's not listening. And then all of a sudden, come Sunday, the second classic round is there, and now they want their horse to be in front of their leg. So, so we, we spend time in every lesson getting our horses to be responsive to the aids and getting our riders to learn how to do that and be consistent with it. When you're on a horse, you're either training it or untraining it, and there's a lot of untraining that goes on. Um, <laughs> so you can't, you can't, like I said, I'll tell my riders they'll, they'll. They'll do the flat portion if they're being a little lazy about it. Then we'll go to jump, and all of a sudden they're shortening their reins and pulling their spurs up. That's not the time to be shortening your reins and pulling your spurs up when you're actually going on course. It has to happen, you know, prior. Your horse has to trust that when you put your leg on, there's something that's going to back it up. If if that's just more leg, if they don't respond, you can't be galloping to the last ox or on Sunday, see the long distance, and close your leg and expect them to move forward if all week they've been you know, trailing around and not listening to your leg. That's a great, a really great point. Definitely. 
So, you know, do you have a favorite exercise or type of work? You know, we've talked about the flat work, so maybe, you know, moving on to the the jumping side of things. Um, do you have a favorite exercise, you know, that you think is important or that you use with a lot of students? Yeah, I I, I go back to grids a lot. So I, I like to use the grids because it really helps with like even just a today we were working on a, a a short two to a one stride grid vertical ox or vertical and then I like to put something bending on the back side of it to the left and to the right because I really you know the flat work really carries over to the jumping you got to have that horse in front of your leg straight and balanced and then when a horse starts to jump a lot of times you'll see them you know with a drift or moving to their weak side uh, so straightness at the jumps is so paramount uh, for what's happening at the jump, what's happening after the jump. You know, if they, if they, if they're, if they're, if they're drifting left and you've got a right bending line that's forward in a metal finals, you know, it's, it's, it's going to cost you. So I like to do like some, a grid with some straight jumps and then have some sort of raised cavalettis or, or poles on the backside to the left and to the right. And I want to see if I can get my horses doing it equally well through the grid and then going both directions so that we feel like the horse is very straight and responsive and balanced turning either way off a jump. A lot of horses have one side they're stronger on. So, you know, working working to get them square, balanced, and as balanced on each lead and going each direction, I think is is what I what I go to all the time. Okay. And then, you know, you've talked about, you know, the, the care of the, the horse is a priority. Um, yes. What what do you see as important aspects in caring for a horse? I mean, you've you've touched on some of them, but I don't know if you can elaborate a little I, bit more. I think the most important one is getting them out of their stalls as much as possible. I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm really fortunate that I own my own ranch and it's 15 acres and we have lots of paddocks. We have treadmills, we have Eurosizer, uh, we have round pen, we have covered ring, we have outdoor ring. But these horses weren't built to be in a stall for 23 hours and then be out for an hour. Uh, it affects them physically and mentally negatively if you do that. So really, a, a, a horse in my program is going to be out probably four to five times a day. So they're going to they're going to be on the treadmill. They're going to get a groom. They're going to be in a they're going to be in their turnouts for a minimum of an hour, up to three hours. Uh, they're going to get ridden once or twice a day. So so I think that that is that's really foundational because I think, like I said, it, it affects their their mental well-being and their physical well-being. Moving on a little bit, you you spoke about Avery. Um, so do you train her on a consistent basis? Avery's mom and I both train her some, but we did find that when she kind of hit the teen years, there was a little bit of a parent-daughter, uh, uh, I don't know, factor moving in. So we actually have been fortunate enough that it's such a great, in many ways, the horse industry is such a great industry because the good professionals all help each other. So Avery now has multiple people that help her. My assistants do a great job with her, uh, Heather Rhodes and Kylie Arbuckle. Um, my wife, Rebecca Bruce, um, she, Avery does most of her medal finals. Uh, either her mom will be there or I'll be there, but she stables with Elden Star and Jim Hagman and his amazing team. Um, so she, it's, it's kind of the, the perfect situation. Uh, in that we can maybe give input to whoever's helping her, you know, so we're behind the scenes because I would say her mom and I know her the best and, her, you know, know what she might need to be working on. But it coming out of our mouth for a while there became a little contentious. So we have the perfect situation that we have all these these people to help us. And then if we want to consult with them before, you know, we say this is what we're seeing. 
you know, we have great relationships with all those people and they, they implement that for us. And it's been great. Avery, Avery has developed fantastic relationships now in a couple barns uh, with different people. She was just back in Florida with Missy, uh, had an incredible experience. Um, so she's, she, yes, uh, her mom and I train her, but she has a lot of other influences and is, is thriving because, because of it. Um, and then speaking about, about your wife, uh, Rebecca Bruce Glenn, yes. um, she's a trainer and writer from Santa Barbara yes. and you un understand that you met on a blind date and, and yeah. married in the fall of 2019. Is that correct. correct? Yes. Um, you're both operating your own businesses, um, yep. hers is Sunnybrook in Santa Barbara. So how do you, uh, maybe backing up a little bit, just how did, how did you meet? Maybe if you could walk us through that. We have a mutual great friend named Jill Hamilton, who is a great trainer and friend who runs Millennium and owns Millennium Farm down in the Porto area. Becca was coming up to try ponies with Jill. And about six weeks before, Jill reached out to both of us and said, you two should should meet. Uh, and I think we both had reservations. Uh, and Jill was great. She just kept pushing us both a little bit. And she finally just said, listen, you two, you two should go spend some time together because at the minimum you will come away with a good friendship. And it, it was at our first date was an amazing date. And we are now married. Becca is living here in Sonoma at my ranch. Uh, we are running both of our, our barns still. She goes at least one week a month uh, back down to Santa Barbara. She'll actually be leaving tomorrow. Uh, and then we try and coordinate our show schedules together as much as possible so that our barns can travel together. Uh, it's, it's really a, a great circumstance. Both Becca and I really believe in the teams behind us that help us with our barns. Uh, she has a great assistant, Shane, at home. Her mom does a lot of work at the farm. Uh, there's a lot of similarities in that we are both still involved with our families, with our businesses. Um, but it's it's working fantastic. Her business is great. My business is great. And the businesses kind of enhance, enhance each other. They, we really wanted them to have their own identities and have our assistants have their own identities and have, have our clients have their own identities. But they can also mingle. And my clients can go to Santa Barbara if they want for a weekend. She has clients that come up here and train for periods of time. So, I mean, it's really pretty spectacular to think that we have the two farms, one in Sonoma and one in Santa Barbara. When people ask me where I'd want to live in the world, those are probably two of the top ten places or, or top five. So. So it's 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 going fantastic. It's work and there's some travel involved, uh, but I think it's thriving and we're really loving it. And how do you you know you mentioned uh, you know you're you're living at your farm. How how do you how do you balance that too? You know your personal life versus um, work. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It it does it it takes it takes scheduling basically and planning. Uh, it takes getting the calendar out at the beginning of the year and then once a month and making sure that I, we put a little time on like, for like, uh, this summer, uh, <laughs> we, Avery's going on a Lake Powell trip with Becca's family and myself and then my niece and nephew and their family. So it, it takes forethought. You have to schedule things early and put them on a calendar. Otherwise this sport just wraps you up because there's another horse to be tried. There's another new client that wants to see the barn. There's another uh, pony you've got to fly back East to try. So you have to put some, some small spacers. And I don't think, I think if you choose this lifestyle, you're not going to have a, a completely normal life as far as you're not going to work Monday through Friday and have weekends off. That's not going to happen. Uh, but Beck and I are really realistic that it's important for our relationship to add some time for the two of us uh, 
that we put on a calendar at least a month out, you know, once a month, a weekend or two days uh, where we can just we do little staycations or so, some sort of dates, things that just just give us a little bit of a break from the the, the constant running of, of the horse businesses and the shows. So forethought and scheduling, you have we, we both own calendars. And if you don't do that, if, if you do not write something down on a calendar early and, and keep coming back to it, you you will not follow through on it. It just doesn't happen. We get too busy, like I said, and, and everything. The reason we're successful is because we're so driven and we're driven to, to, to find another nice horse. And we're driven to give every horse and every client everything that we possibly can. So in the moment when something comes up, if something's not scheduled, it's really easy to find yourself adding a show adding a trip to the east coast to find a horse you know so so that would, my advice to the young the young trainers is just just put a, a a few dates on that calendar at the beginning of the year and then each month put a day or two on that calendar because i, I think you come back a better trainer and you do a better job across the board for your horses and your and your clients if if you have a little bit of balance and then you know you you hold the sonoma valley stables derby weekend yes. um can you talk a little bit about just, you know, when and how that came about and how it's structured? And um, yeah. I understand it's a, a, your, it gives donations to the community food bank. Yes. yes. So um, we have a beautiful facility, beautiful ring, beautiful jumps. Uh, so I just I, I thought it was foolish to always be taking all these horses and trailers all over the state and all over the country to compete when we could actually have a host competition at, at the facility. So. Probably we've, we've had some small schooling shows and stuff for the past seven or eight years, but about three or four years ago, um, I decided I thought it would be a great idea to make it a charity event and involve the community a little bit more. So we partnered with, there's a great local food bank called the Redwood Empire Food Bank that does just incredible service to our community. And we have become, they, they told me last year that we are one of their biggest corporate sponsors and we've, we've been able to donate to them over $100,000 over the last three years. Uh, uh, it's an unrated horse show. It's three days long. It's just right now. It's just based towards hunters. Um, we do divisions on, on Friday and Saturday, and then we do three or four derbies on Sunday. Uh, that basically all the things that I don't like about some of the cookie cutter, big horse shows, we tried to alleviate, alleviate. So it's, it's a, it's a one ring show. Uh, so trainers can really focus on the riders that they're putting on, putting in the ring at that time. Um, uh, by getting community help and volunteers, we're able to really produce a really enjoyable, uh, high-level competition with fantastic prizes, fantastic experience for the horses and riders. And then at the same time, we're raising a tremendous amount of money for a fantastic organization. So it it it's it's kind of timely because there's a lot of discussion going on right now about mileage protection and and do we need ratings or not. And I do. Uh, that's a whole nother avenue. I do think that we need some sort of, of protection for and ratings for big horse shows. But at the same time, I, I put on this event for clients and it's half the cost. And I think they get this for the, the, the level of people competing at my show, they get twice the experience. So it, it just it makes me think that that we can rethink our sport a little bit and maybe maybe do more of what I'm trying to do here, because uh, it, it opens it up to a to to more people, more people are able to do what I offer than the average premier horse show, you know, that's, that's five days and is cost prohibitive for a lot of people. So it's, it's really exciting. Uh, we, I'm proud of it and it's going to grow. We're, I've already gotten fantastic response from past years with people that are wanting to be involved. 
And it seems like you have, you know, a great mix. Obviously, you're you're a great horseman. Um, you seem like a, a wonderful people person and a obviously a very solid businessman. Like how how do you think you were able to sort of achieve yeah. that extra? Yeah, I guess it's nature nurture. I think I've always been a good people person. Like I feel like that's my my kind of born personality. Um, but it, again, it goes back to the, this path that I've been on. We, we didn't just jump into it. I had the influence of my parents who talked to me about what maybe I needed to, to get in order before I started this, this journey. And that really helped. I think that, I think with, even with Avery, my daughter, I'm going to encourage her to go to college. If she can get those four years and go to college, just allow her to mature a little bit and learn some other skills that'll help her with her business. So if she, she wants to be a top writer, she still will be able to run a business, which, which, a lot of being a top writer has to do with your your interpersonal skills and your ethics and your your business skills. All those things are really, really important long term. So I think my parents gave me a leg up and encouraged me to go to college and giving me uh, a chance to build a foundation in the things we just discussed so that when I started, there was already a foundation there. And then I've just learned it along the way. Well, thank you. This has been a wonderful, wonderful discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Ned Glenn. And a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Bimeda. Learn more at bimedaus.com. You can subscribe to the Practical Horseman podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While there, please rate and review the show. I'm Sandra Olenek, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman podcast.